Good morning. We're going to be working our way through the Paul's, Paul's, we don't know, we really don't think it was Paul, sounds like Paul. Anyways, whoever wrote the letter to the Hebrews, we really don't know who it is. Um, One of the things that the writer begins with is the notion, which is really important for us, if you want to get to know God, if you want to understand what he's like and understand what he thinks and understand what he wants, if God was not self-revealing, if he didn't speak himself out, these things would be impossible for us because God's ways are different than ours. And we just can't figure God out because we'd like to. But fortunately, what the writer indicates is that one of God's basic attributes is that he speaks. And the writer to this letter told us, as we looked last week, that God speaks a couple different ways. He speaks through creation, and you can look out the window. and You can know some things about God by looking out the window. God uh, sends rain on the just and the unjust. He is certainly creative. He puts things in place. The things he puts in place work. He doesn't make mistakes. Things carry on. We can learn a lot about God from looking at creation. But God just doesn't speak himself out through creation. He speaks himself out through people. And in speaking himself out through people, we'll learn this morning that God speaks different messages and two messages that he spoke which seem to be in conflict with each other. They don't seem to say the same thing. In fact, they seem a little bit incompatible, which might give us a problem. What we'll find is that there is an old word of God. This was the writer will kind of lead us to understand as we look through this letter, and there's a new word of God. Uh, Look what it says. We're going to just work our way through Hebrews 2, 1 through 9. It starts, the writer says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. The author, the guy who writes this, envisions the people, his hearers, as um, a ship moored in a harbor with God as the anchor and God's word as the anchor. And what he talks about, if they don't pay close attention to God's word, if they if they don't pay attention to the word as a diligent student would pay attention to a teacher whom they really want to understand. That's the kind of attitude the writer is encouraging his readers to have towards God's word. See it as a favorite teacher and really tune it in. If they do that, they will stay in a place that will benefit them, but if they don't, they'll be carried away from port. Imagine a ship that you're on, and it's not moored anywhere. And it kind of gets drawn by the current and drifts away. That's what the writer is indicating. And he's trying to get them to understand, pay really good attention to the word. And again, we'll see about a certain aspect of God's word. And if you don't, then you'll be carried away, you'll drift away. And it talks about why drifting away from the word could create a problem. Look at verse 2. He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, 
and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We talk about this often. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but we do need, as we come to this letter, to understand covenants because to a Jew, covenants were very important. They understood covenants. Covenants is how they thought about God. And so we need to understand a few things about covenants. Uh, Covenants are legally binding and forcible contracts between God and man. They're legally binding, and that means they have force. He's going to administrate people. He's going to deal with men and women based on the covenant that he establishes. If you don't know the covenant, that really doesn't matter. It's still going to be the way that he judges individuals. Say if you didn't know the speed limit on this road out here. You imagine that it's, and you don't know, um, and you get pulled over. Sometimes the... um, Harrisburg and Sioux Falls Finest, they, um, they hide right here. There's, and so then, or, or even they, there's a real, there's a really, even a better place. We have our office down there and there's those pine trees. And there's no way they, they just hide right there in the pine tree and people zip past. And, and so say you zip past as some of you are wont to do. Uh, and they pull you aside and he says, you were going 55. You said, I didn't know. He won't say, okay. I'm sorry. No, you get tagged because the law is binding, and you're going to get the ticket, and if you don't settle up, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to get some other things. That's what covenants are like. They're legally binding contracts. We've seen this before, but just by way of review, um, there's a couple different kinds of covenants in the Bible Uh, Two that are the main ones, there are others, but there are two primary ones, an old covenant and a new covenant. Again, covenants are contractual agreements that God establishes with people. The old has three different parts. It has commitments and commandments and consequences. It's a suzerain vassal. Uh, A suzerain is a powerful king. A vassal is a less powerful king. And the way a covenant works in this case is when somebody who is weak and vulnerable wants to be protected, they come into a covenant with a more powerful king. And so with respect to the old covenant, we are kind of the needy ones. And God is the suzerain. There are three things. Again, the commitments are what God promises to do. And the commandments are what we need to do in order for God to do what he does. And so the kind of the summary, actually there's 713 commandments, but the summary of the commandments that the old covenant demands of us are the Ten Commandments. Those are part of the Old Covenant, individuals indicate, well, are the Ten Commandments still relevant? And in a way they are, but we need to understand the Ten Commandments are part of the Old Covenant. That's, we can't understand them unless we understand that that's what, that's what they're about. 
And then there's uh, consequences with the old covenant. There's curses and blessings. And it talks about, and there's, there's two or three chapters about here's what will happen if you keep the commandments, and here's what will happen if you don't. Pretty clear. That's the old covenant established from Mount Sinai through Moses. And then there's the new covenant. And this is a different kind of covenant. It's a divine grant. And as you'll notice, there's no commandments. There's no consequences. There's commitments. And that's what if you see in the new covenant, it says, I will. There's no if you. There's just I will. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will put my law on your minds and write it on your hearts. I will forgive your wickedness and remember your sins no more. There's two covenants and what we want to understand is between God and I, these are legally binding. And we're either under the authority of the old or under the authority of the new. And it doesn't matter if somebody believes in God or not. It might be a different religion. Everyone on the earth, what the Bible writer would tell us, is under the authority of one of either of these two covenants. We're either under the authority of the old or we're under the authority of the new. Um, we can infer that the old covenant, covenant, covenant was binding and valid. Why? Because, as the writer says, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. When you look at the Old Testament and you see a lot of scary things happen, and we can look at that and kind of figure, geez, boy, I don't, why did all those people Why did God deal with them so harshly? And as we've said, it seems in the Bible that God was in a bad mood in the Old Covenant and in a good mood in the New. You know, in the Old Covenant, people getting wiped out and and God seems really hard to please, very severe. And in the New Covenant, he seems very different. The fact is, God does not change. The thing about God in this book, from beginning to end, He is a God who keeps covenants. That's what he does. The difference in this book is the difference in covenants. Not the difference in God, but the difference in the covenant that God judges people by. There's an old covenant, and then there's a new covenant. But God is the same. He's a God who keeps covenant. The harshness of the Old Testament is about the covenant that was in place at the time. When the Bible talks about old covenant influence, look what it says. Romans 3, it's in your worship folder, under the old word of God. It's what it says, now we know that whatever the law says, and it's talking about the law of Moses, the commandments that were part of the old covenant, that's what it's talking about. Whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What the old covenant exists for is to bring the whole world under the sense of being accountable to God that they're sinners before God. That was its purpose. And it promotes, and you need to remember what it promotes in terms of do you speak to him or not, it promotes silence. If you understand what the 
commandments are, don't covet your neighbor's wife. This is the tenth one. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's life. And if you covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's life in any way, you've violated the commandment. All you have to do is violate one in order to be accountable for God for that violation. That's a pretty harsh standard. Would you agree? Some people would indicate, no, I've kept all the commandments. No, you haven't. No one has. How can you control what you think? How can you go by someone and and I, I'm not going to think that I want what they have? You, you, good luck with that. We all violate this covenant. And in the Old Testament, people who did that, they paid for it. So that's Old Covenant influence. New Covenant influence is very different. Look what it says in Hebrews 4. We'll come to this passage when we get here, but I just want to read it. Past, talk about a few things. For the Word of God and the Word of God that exists at this time. This, the letter of Hebrews, was written about 50 A.D., 45, 50 A.D. The word of God that existed at this time in written form was the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written until about 250 years later. So the influence of the word of God, here's, what it's just, here's how it describes its influence. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning. That word discerning means judging. Judging. The thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What the old covenant, what the old word of God promotes is a sense of exposure and nakedness before God, the kind of thing that will cause you to say, I don't have a leg to stand on. Some try to make this a nice thing. To be naked and exposed is not a nice thing. It's not a nice thing. It's The old covenant is in place to promote a sense of accountability. But now it goes on to talk about the change that Jesus comes, because Jesus comes to bring a new covenant. Not that kind, that kind. And here's what it says. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The thing in the Old Testament that you will not find from angels, we talk about it, is sympathy. Angels don't do sympathy. They don't. When an angel shows up in the Old Testament, usually people die. That's what happens. And they carry out God's sentence with finality. Um, Jesus, though, because while an angel, and we'll hear about them again, they are unembodied spirit beings, unembodied Spirit beings. We are embodied spirit beings. Spirit beings in a body. Jesus is like us, an embodied spirit being. That's why he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to live in a body, to be cold, to be frightened. He knows about all those things. That's why 
when Jesus, he represents the new covenant, which there is sympathy and compassion. And where it goes on to say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The word for confidence is speak freely. And interesting, the old covenant promotes silence. The new covenant promotes openness. If you understand the new covenant to the degree you understand it and hear it, you will find yourself slowly, progressively being more comfortable speaking with God. That's what it does. To understand God's love, it promotes a sense of moving towards him. Um, And it says, we come to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The new covenant is really why Jesus came. Somebody asks you, why did Jesus come? There's a lot of things you might say to be an example, to be a savior. And if you want to tack it down, and he really came to inaugurate a new covenant. Um, it says in verse 3, halfway through Hebrews 2, this new covenant was declared at first by the Lord, was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You know why Jesus did miracles? So we could understand that something was happening, that he was inaugurating a legally binding new covenant. If Jesus hadn't done any miracles, we would have no reason to believe that he changed anything. I mean, by what authority could he change a covenant that, that God established through Moses 1,400 years earlier. But Jesus did a lot of miracles, raised people from the dead, proved that he was God, and he himself rose from the dead. What does that mean? We have cause to believe that what he said he came to do, he did, which is inaugurate a new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. That's what Jesus came to do. What did Jesus come to do? To inaugurate a new covenant. Um, And he calls it a great salvation. Salvation. You hear that word about what does it mean to be saved? To be saved is to be saved from something. What are we saved from? What do you need to be saved from? You know what we need to be saved from? Again, there's not a mistake here. I'm not saying God is bad. But the old covenant exists to promote an awareness of sin. It doesn't produce and promote righteousness. It promotes accountability. What Jesus comes to do is to allow us to move out from under the jurisdiction of the old and underneath the jurisdiction of the new, that's why he came. That's what it means to be saved. That's why you hear the message, you understand that Jesus died and rose again, you understand that he died to give a new covenant, and you understand by believing that that's what he did, you start to relate to God not as the an old covenant God, but as a new covenant God. You start to listen to, and again, you, it's not that the Old Testament is wrong. It needs to exist. But the covenant that God operates by is not the one found in the Old Testament. It's the one found in the New. 
Um, salvation moves us from one covenant to in, into another, and it moves us from the authority of angels to the authority of Jesus. Look what it says in verse 5. And here's one of the things that a Jew would, and we don't think about this much. I'm going to tell you this, and some of you are going to go, well, that's kind of interesting. Not. Some of you are going to think, well, no, I really like that stuff. I, you know, depending on what you like. But what it says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. To a Jew, angels were in charge of this world. If you've ever read Daniel, if you ever read Daniel's prophecy, there's a lot of nutty things in Daniel's prophecy, but there's a bunch of princes running around. There's the Prince of Persia, and there's a video game that was named after it, but the Prince of Persia is an angelic being that has responsibility for Persia. He's kind of the spirit being who's in charge of Persia. Some of you are saying, oh, yeah, I know all about that. Some of you are saying, I've never heard that, and I really don't want to hear much more about it. And we're not going to talk a bunch more about it, but there's the Prince of Greece, and then Michael is the archangel who is in charge of Israel, and so to a Jew, they understood that there are angelic beings that are in charge of different nations. And and that's kind of the way that works. Angels are given responsibility to govern this world. However, what this writer says, they will not govern the world to come. There's going to be a change of worlds. It's going to be ushered in when Jesus comes a second time. The new world, the heavenly world, angels are not going to be in charge. They're in charge now on this world. They will not be in charge of that world. And that's a really good thing. When an angel shows up, a lot of people die. And so I'm glad they're not going to be in charge there. Um, it says in verse 6, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Who's in charge in the world to come? Who's in charge? You know who's in charge? Jesus and those who believe in him. If you're a believer in Jesus, I want you to raise your hand. Raise your hand. I'm looking at the people that are going to be in charge. In the, and I don't know what that means. I, I don't know. Some of you, I don't know. But we, angels won't, they won't rule over us. This is what Paul writes. Um, because, I, and again, I don't know what this means. I don't know if it means we have desks. Whether angels are our servants, I don't know what it means. Um, but listen to what it says. It'll mean Paul writes. It's not in the, it's not in your worship folder. But here's what he says, and he's talking to people who they are appealing to the government of Rome to settle disputes in the church. And Paul says, "Come on." This is what he says. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints, or do you not know? that the saints will judge the world. 
what he's saying to them, listen, you guys, settle your disputes because you're going to be settling disputes on the other side. I don't know what kind of disputes we're going to be settling. But what he says is, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? I guess what it's saying, practice your administrative What, what would you call it? Strength? Because you're going to need it. I don't know what we're going to do in heaven. I have no idea. We're not going to be sitting around playing harps, though. We're not going to be doing that, and angels aren't going to be floating around. It's not going to be boring. There will be some things for us to do, I guess. I don't know if we're going to boss angels around. Okay, then go, just go on, Mike. If you don't know, don't, don't belabor it. Just keep going. That's what you say. Um, It says, um, now you might, okay, I want you to look around. I want you to look around. Look around. In fact, we kind of position the chairs this way, so you're not just looking at me, you're just looking around. Look at the people across the aisle. Does that look like the kind of person that's going to rule in heaven? Come on, really. Look at these guys over here. Look at, I mean, look at this. I mean, is this a ruling family here? Come on. <laughs> Look at, well, here's what it says. It talks about in verse 6, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. And again, Jesus is the one who is ultimately the leader. But we are going to be co-regents. I, nah. In putting everything in subjection to him, he has left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Um, those whom God chooses to grant authority over the world to come, Jesus and those who believe in him, we might not look like much right now. Check in with us a hundred years from now. We're going to be different. I don't know what it means. But we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. I don't think it's going to be stressful. I don't know what it will be like. It's going to be everything we ever imagined. It's going to be the place that we always wanted to be. That place where we can say, finally, finally, this is the kind of world that I wanted to live in. This is what I was looking for all those years when I was on earth. And I never understood that part of the problem on earth is that it was being overseen by angels who are kind of harsh and rigid. This is a world that Jesus is in charge of, and it makes a world of difference. And we're going we're gonna to live there forever. Um, application, a couple things. Um, it says at the end, Jesus by the grace of God, Jesus suffered death so that he might taste death on behalf of everyone. There's only one way you can go from here to here. There's only one way you can get out from under the jurisdiction of the old covenant. Death. It's the only way. The law is into effect. The law is in effect as long as a person's alive, but when the person dies then the law is no longer in effect. And that's 
And you can then deal with that one of two ways. One way has a, has a hope on the other side of it. Jesus died, was buried, and raised again. What happens, here's the way it works. When you believe in Christ, in God's eyes, you die with him. And if you die with him, you die to the law that that is in that is in control of everyone on the earth. So you die, you're raised and you're ascended with him, and that means you are no longer under the jurisdiction of old covenant law. You know what I just described? What happens when you become a believer in Jesus? And what he wants them to continue to remember, continue to remember that through faith in Christ, this is your legacy. This is what happens. You're no longer under that covenant in Christ. You are now out from under that covenant and under a new covenant. Um, Angels will have a role. I'm just going to read you really quick this parable. Jesus tells a parable and then he explains it, which is kind of interesting. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then later on, he tells another couple parables. Here's what happened. Then he left the crowds, went into the house, His disciples came to him saying, hey, Jesus, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. We really want to know what that one means. And you know what Jesus said? Okay. And here's what he said. Here's what it means. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The good seed are those individuals who represent God and speak the truth about what his desires and wishes are. The field is the word, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are... Angels. Now, here's what it says. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and stumbling, and all who, and all lawlessness, then the righteous will shine. So here's the deal. Let's say, who am I going to pick on? 
Randy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Randy and Brett. No. So here's what, let's say I am Michael the angel. Okay. Here's what's going to happen. At the end of the age, Jesus is going to dispatch angels. And what they are going to identify all causes of stumbling and all lawlessness and all who do lawlessness. Lawlessness is the name given to those who are underneath the law that they are going to gather individuals who still see and believe that God operates by the old covenant. He's going to remove the causes of stumbling. Well, and he'll remove those who see themselves under it. So if I take Randy and Brett, because they still believe that God operates by this covenant, let's say the rest of you don't, what happens to you? You don't have to be judged by angels because angels only have jurisdiction over those who are part of the covenant that they were the mediators of. So if you are not under the old covenant because you have put your faith in Christ and you're under the new covenant, do you need to be afraid that when you get to heaven you're going to face an angel? You don't need to be, and if you do, then be afraid, but you're not going to. Angels are not capable of sympathy. I'll tell you what, if you get up there and you face Jesus, you were in really good shape, eternally, because that's why he came. That's why he came. Um, that's why it says, um, pay closer attention to what you heard. Covenant clarity, and I'm going to end with this. We talk about it a lot. Covenants we talk about pretty frequently. And you might like that and you might not like that. It seems to me, though, the most important thing you can know about God is what covenant he's operating by. If you believe God's operating by that covenant, it will not be possible for you to grow to love the way God wants you to love. You're just not going to be able to do it. You can't love because somebody puts a gun to your head. can't do it. The most important thing you can understand about God is that he's operating by this covenant. And that's why we do communion. Everything is part of understanding what God is going to operate by when he judges. Um, Paul says this, time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Well, Paul says one of the things that's going to happen toward the end of time is that people are going to want to hear not things that might be really true and beneficial, which I think this kind of stuff really is, but they will want to hear things that will scratch the ear. Just entertain me. Say things that, oh, yeah, that's, that's right. Things that itch the ear. The gathering, oh, say that thing again. I really like when you say that thing. And the thing that's, that will not happen 
People won't endure sound teaching. They just won't have the stomach for it. They won't have the stomach for it. And you know what the deal is with that? That really frightens me. It frightens me. Because covenant clarity is essential. If you go to church and just learn how to be moral, that's not right. It's not right. We have to understand about God and what it is. So with that in mind, some of you are saying, Mike, I'm kind of confused about this whole thing. What I tell you, if you're able to, keep coming back. Keep coming back. Keep coming back. Over time, it gets clearer and clearer. Your thinking about how God operates will get clearer and clearer. And as it does, you'll understand him and it will change your heart. Brett, come on up. We're going to make a closing song. Taylor, you too. Nice to see you. Can you pray for us? Uh, Father, when we, um, we, it is a little confusing. There are two words of God. You've spoken in different ways. And the old word and the new word, you purposed both of them. But the first word, the old covenant, was intended to be temporary, not eternal. The second one is eternal. Your new word has replaced the old one. I ask that as we think about things like this, that we would understand more clearly what it is you want from us. You want us to understand that you, your orientation towards us is New covenant, that you forgive our wickedness as you remember sins no more. You are helios towards us. Non-reactive, and as we understand, you're not firing bullets at our feet. We grow to want to know you. It causes us to change. You pray that over the time, over time, you would gradually increase our understanding of what you say to us. Help us to believe it so that it would change us. In Jesus' name, amen.